I hope that you and I are together for the day when this is no longer an event, mm. where Nasib doesn't have to come out, where nobody has to come out, where they're not defined by who they love. Um, that will be a good day. I hope we get to see it. Um, and I hope uh, we start making progress in a way that has eluded us so far. I'm happy for him. But I really wish it weren't so consequential for everybody and that we didn't have to monitor it now and that Michael Sam didn't have to come out. I mean, I know you remember him, Missouri State. Uh, He never played a game in the NFL, even though he was a warrior and a crusher in college and highly sought after because of the mental strain of the year following when he decided to come out. So I hope that things continue with, let's, let's say it optimistically, to get better. Anderson, appreciate your reporting on it, as always. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to primetime. So, how about now? How about now, Democrats? Are you ready to play to win now? Have you had enough? McConnell and co. did exactly what we knew and you knew they would do. They tanked even the suggestion to debate the need to curtail state efforts to send voting rights back 50 years. They won't even allow debate. Nothing to fix, says Senator McConnell. Really? If there's nothing to fix, then why don't you say that to all the red states that say they must pass these laws to fix fraud? Why don't you say that to them? Because you're playing the game and it is ugly and obvious. And I want you to hear the words of a leader made for today, nailing the reality of this moment. I think the tragedy is that we have a Congress with a Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. They won't let the majority of senators vote. And suddenly they wouldn't want the majority of people to vote because they know they do not represent the majority of American people. In fact, they are representing their own states, a very small minority. Question for you, my brothers and sisters. Who said it? Chuck Schumer? President Biden? Former President Obama? Pelosi? Nope. None of them. Our current dilemma is merely an echo of the exclusionary tactics of a generation ago when this was first said. Listen. I think the tragedy is that uh, we have a Congress uh, with a Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. They won't let the majority of senators vote. And certainly they wouldn't want the majority of people to vote because they know they do not represent the majority of the American people. In fact, they represent in their own states a very small minority. Dr. King, a half a century ago, you know, we thought this battle was over, but it wasn't. The stakes are once again the same as then. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., pushed the Senate to overcome a culture of exclusion back then, a year before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, two years before the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But here we are again today, talking about a minority party using a filibuster to allow them to keep suppressing the votes of minorities and others. It is an existential battle. This is not about left and right. It is about right and wrong. And I don't understand. 
how you can see two sides on this. I don't see how you can believe any suggestion that these laws don't do anything to retard anybody's rights. They don't really limit. All they do is limit to one degree or another. Just as then a minority is trying to keep the vote as close to them as possible and lying about that intention. Listen. Well, the, the, big, the biggest lie being told in American politics in recent weeks has been that the states are involved in a systematic effort to suppress the vote. There is no effort in any state in America to suppress uh, votes based upon uh, suppression of minority uh, participation. There's nothing broken around the country. If nothing is broken around the country, then why have 14 states enacted 22 new restrictive voting laws since the 2020 election? Every one of them, in every instance, citing that election as a reason for this need. 389 bills have been introduced in 48 states with provisions that to one degree or another restrict voting access, many disproportionately targeting voters of color. Remember, here's the hypocrisy, the people behind them. Yes, 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 Mitch. Yes. Those lawmakers who voted against H.R. 1 and S. 1, they won on the same exact ballots they now want you to believe are fraudulent. A third of you believe this BS that they've been selling you. That's according to a new national poll. And now they'll point to the poll and say, see, people think that there was fraud. We should address it. You told them there was fraud. Lie, defy reason, deny reality. Even McConnell gets what this is about. Listen. The rotten inner workings of this power grab have been thoroughly exposed to the light. What a way to show your disdain for the American people's choices. He's exactly right, except he's talking about himself and his pals here on the left of your screen. Terrorists storming the Capitol. His party that very night voted to carry out the efforts of the rioters and overturn the election, failing to certify is what they wanted. That was one of the biggest power grab attempts in American history. So now what? Manchin from West Virginia, the Democrat of the moment, and all the other Democrats voted for debate to happen on the bill that they've been hammering out. All 50 of them. Will that vote hold to do what they must now to get this protective process through? Modify the filibuster and halt a move to take us back a generation or not? Those are the stakes. Let's ask a better mind, one who can who cast his vote to advance S1 on the Senate floor today, Senator Bob Casey, Democrat, critical background state of Pennsylvania. Good to see you, sir. Chris, good to be with you. Thank you. So obviously the easy question is, where do we go? Well, Chris, look, we have to continue to make the case. Um, today was just the beginning. Today it was very clear that one party unanimously wanted to protect the right to vote, and the other party didn't even want to debate it. I mean, that's, I think what you said earlier is important to emphasize. This was a vote to proceed to the debate. It wasn't even a, a debate or, or a vote on the, the bill itself. So one party did that. It's very clear to America now what the stakes are. But we're at the beginning of this. We have to keep fighting to make sure that more and more Americans know what's at stake. I think, I think there's a chance we can make progress just getting to 50 as you know, required some work. But I think we've got to make the case day after day because at the core of these voter suppression laws 
in my judgment at the state level, is white supremacy. Simple as that. And un unless we continue to make the case on voting rights, um, then the other side will prevail. But I think today was just the beginning. Help us understand that, um, that you have to start making the case. Why isn't it just keep all 50 of your uh, number together and convince Manchin, Cinema, and a couple others. We got to modify the filibuster to put it back to single talker. And then when that expires, um, you know, we, we can uh, vote for cloture and get it done. Isn't that the only fight ahead of you if you want to get this done? Well, I think it's both. I still think we have to continue to make the case to the country about what happened today and what, what's at stake. Why? But, but be, without a doubt, because I think still a lot of people around the country haven't tuned in yet to this. But we got to make that case. But you're right. Ultimately, we have to modify at least the 60-vote rule. Uh, when you consider what happened just uh, in the mid-1970s, that number went from 67 to 60. There's no reason why we shouldn't either reduce the number or bring about some other change to make sure that voting rights are protected. Now, I've heard senators um, in our caucus who said, I have real concerns about change in the rule, but for this issue, I could be persuaded. So that's the case that they've made. Uh, so many of us are, are already there, but I still think we can make the case to members of our caucus about the urgency and the primacy of this issue, the right to vote. But you don't think you're going to get 10 votes from the other side in terms of making the case to the American people. I mean, you know, you already have solid poll numbers about people believing that these are problematic laws. No, I, I don't believe, Chris, I think you're right. I don't believe that we're at a point where we can say, OK, we've got to make the case to Republicans and we'll get 10 of their votes. I don't think that's possible. Now, some may disagree. I'll, I'll listen to those points of view. But we have to make the case be, between and among ourselves to make a change to allow this to go forward. Because when you consider what, what we were uh, voting on today, the motion to proceed to not just, not just a voting rights bill, but a bill that would, would help reduce the influence of of dark money in politics, a bill that would impose stronger ethical rules on all of us, including those in the executive branch. So when they said, don't even debate that, I think they were, they were uh, insulting and really giving the middle finger to the American people. Well, look, Lisa Murkowski, I don't know what finger it was, but you know, supposedly uh, Joe Manchin had her uh, and other Democrats working on her that she was on the right side of this bill. She didn't even vote uh, for it to advance to debate. But Here's the part I don't understand. Why did you guys wait so long on this? You knew that this bill was DOA. You knew that this was going to happen. And this took too long, it seems to me, to get to this point. If you knew that this is where it was all along, why didn't you push, not you, obviously, Senator Casey, this, this wasn't your standalone decision, but Schumer and Pelosi, why didn't they push this harder and give yourselves more time to deal with this? Well, I think, Chris, part of the answer is when you're in the majority, you have responsibilities. And when you have a majority and a, and a presidency of your party, that means we've got to do nominations, a day after day, nomination after nomination. We had to pass the rescue plan. We've got to get this infrastructure bill off the ground. This physical infrastructure only negotiation isn't going to satisfy me because I want home and community-based services. I want investments in child care. I want investments in universal access to pre-K. So to get that off the ground, we've got to do that at the same time. We've got to do a number of things that simultaneously. But I think this was a very clarifying moment for the American people. Every single member of the United States Senate on the Democratic side voted to advance the debate. And I still think we can, we can bring not just our party behind a bill when we get to that point, 
But I think we, we, can, we can end up changing the rules in some fashion. Senator Bob Casey, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Appreciate you on such an important night. Thanks, Chris. Be well. So Schumer, he's the head of the Democrats, right? Head of the Senate majority. He says that this was the starting gun, not the finish line on voting rights. Senator Bob Casey just made that case to you as well. You buy that? I mean, I'm sure they mean it, but how? Like, how many of you are they going to convince and that what, you're going to make your Republican senators vote for it? That's not going to happen, right? So what is the next move for the Democrats? How do you get around the opposition party? Because look, they're locked in, man. They're not the Democrats. So what is the next play here? Van Jones, Insights, next. And I see what you guys are talking about on social media. Stop having the debate about whether or not the Republicans were right to not like this bill as it is. That's not what today was about. Your Republicans, brothers and sisters, they refused to vote to even allow a debate. You see, that's the sin here. You have arguments that this bill is no good. Great. Make them. They voted to not allow debate on the bill that they don't like. Do you understand? That's what's unforgivable about this. Something as fundamental as voting rights, they don't want it to have a fair hearing because they don't have a strong case. Zero voted to debate this. Zero voted for the last COVID relief package, which they are now bragging to you about at home. On the other side, zero amendments have been made to the For the Act people. Zero. Do you understand? That means they don't want to make it better. They don't want to change it. They just want to oppose. Now, does that mean zero is also the number for any path to helping Joe Manchin or any other Democrat get tag along votes, Murkowski or any of them? She didn't vote for debate today either to get to 10. Let's bring in Van Jones. It's good to see you, brother. Good to see you too, brother. I don't get this. Uh, The battle has just begun, says Schumer. The battle has just begun, says Casey. Now the negotiating can begin, I hear from other Democrats. They won't even debate it. Why do you think they would vote for anything? Well, let's talk about what's really going on. Uh, At the grassroots level, uh, you have activists who who have fought and bled and died to try to stop these Republican bills at the state level. Um, and I, I mean elected officials, I mean activists, I mean donors. I mean, they have done all they could. and they Not got, working. It's not working. And they got steamrolled. And so the Democratic Party at the top could not sit back and say, oh, well, geez, you know, nothing we can do, guys. They had to put on this full court press, even though you knew, I knew, and everybody else knew they were going to run right into the stone wall. But you can at least now, as a, as a party, say we didn't leave you to, to die on, on the battlefield by yourself. We did all we could at the, at the federal level. And they may continue the conversation. But here's reality. The, the federal government is not going to help now. Uh, at the grassroots level, we are on our own. And so we're going to have to now come into reality. We can keep pouring, you know, uh, you know uh, we can call and we can do whatever. We got to get ready for one of the most consequential elections up the steepest hill with the most unfair rules in a generation or two or three. And that's where we are. So I understand why they want to keep talking about it and, 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 and waving the flag. But we knew we were going to hit this wall. But the, the national Democrats were correct not to let the grassroots fight and die on the hill by themselves and try to get the federal government to help, but help is not on the way. We got to deal with that. We got to we got to be realistic. So you think it's over? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I you know I, I I try to call this stuff fair. 
I think you got to keep the pressure on. I do think that the senator is correct. A lot of people are not paying attention at summertime. So you continue to try to define the Republicans as being anti-right to vote. Everybody didn't get the message just this morning. You're going to have to keep that fight up. But the reality, if you're cold, hard, trying to figure out how you're going to hang on to democracy, this is going to be a door-to-door grassroots slugfest in some of the toughest states with some of the toughest rules. And we got to get ready for that fight psychologically. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be, we can spend a lot more time on this, even emotionally, and you know already you don't have 10 more Republicans. They will even let us talk about it. They won't even let us talk about it. And by the way, it was an insult to uh, the people who fought this thing out and won. You put the rules together in these Republican states. It wasn't Democrats. In, in Georgia, Republicans wrote the rule book on, on, on voting. They enforced the rule book. They, they started, and, and we took those rules and won. And what you're saying is across this country, when we win, especially when African-Americans are in leadership and black women in particular in the leadership, we're going to say it's by definition illegitimate. We're going to change the rules. When you play by the rules, we'll change the rules and the federal government can't help you. That's why people feel so bad about this, because you are correct to play Dr. King. It does feel like in the old days when the federal government stood by and let us get mowed down uh, physically and legally and legislatively and did nothing. And Schumer, a lot of people were mad at Schumer today when he came out and said, you're using the language and you're using the rhetoric of the, the, the bad old days. Oh, my God, don't say that. You're, you're insulting McConnell. But listen, if, I, I don't know what's in McConnell's heart, but the, but the argument he made today, McConnell, that the federal government has no business no business protecting voting rights? You haven't heard that for 50 years. I mean, so this is, I, I just, look, I wish I'd come out here and say, hey, we're going to keep pushing and, and we'll, we'll eventually get to the table. This thing at the federal level, as best I can tell, is now an, a messaging exercise. At the grassroots level, it's going to be a muscle exercise. And we've got to get ready now to register like we've never registered before. I'll tell you, I understand that part. Mm-hmm. I do think, though, that this should be the hill to die on for your party. Well, um, because, <laughs> you know, racial inequality was a big driver for Biden. Yep. A lot of people came out for him and gave him a shot that they weren't even sure he deserved. A shot that they weren't even sure your party deserved. Um, but because they thought the stakes were too high. And now you're going to go back to them in this election and say, yeah, sorry, you got your rights cut. We did what we could, but we had a couple of our own that we couldn't control. I think that's a tough sell. Van Jones, we'll do it step by step and we'll do it together. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I mean, look, I, he's an organizer, so I get it. He's saying I can't look to them. I got to get it done on my own. I mean, that's going to be tough to tell minority voters in all these states across the country. Yeah, I know you voted us in to give us a chance to stop Trump and, and all these um, kooks on the uh, far right fringe. But, yeah, we couldn't get it done. And, yeah, you, you know, you, you took a beating on your rights. I, I think that's a tough sell. President Biden is facing that. He's also facing another major challenge. Combating violent crime rising in many American cities. Now, the question people are saying to you is, why are crime rates spiking? We know why crime rates are spiking. And it's not as simple as being one, two or three gun laws away. You got to put people in jail when they break the law. And laws have changed to keep that from happening. We know why this is happening. The question is, do we have the courage to face it and do something about it in a woke society? The Wizard of Odds breaks down the numbers. Next. Here's the reality. We are shooting each other and killing each other at a fever pitch. Homicide rates, they're up. Now, I know they spike when it gets hot outside. 
But this is something we need to look at. Okay, it may be more than seasonal, at least in some places like New York City. When you look at these rates being up across the country, it's true in cities, large and small states, red and blue places that cut police budgets and we're spending increased. And no, we do not see evidence that this is about police not doing their job anymore. So until you have facts on that, shut up about it, at least when you're on this show. President Biden plans to address the spike tomorrow with cops as well as state and local officials. He knows this is going to be a huge political cudgel. Tough on crime is a big political sell. And you're hearing the right say it already. And lives are at stake. But we have to start with the facts. So let's do that here tonight. I'm not going to leave this alone. I'm not one and done. This is a real problem in this country. And we have to stay on it. And this is the perfect time to do it. So let's bring in the Wizard of Odds and begin at the beginning with Harry Enten laying out the numbers. Let's take the three big cities. Um, murder rates are all still going up. So what do you see in that kind of baseline set of numbers? Yeah, I think it's important not just to compare to 2020, right? It's important to compare to 2019. And look at look at the homicide rate. It's up 53% in New York. It's up 29% in Los Angeles compared to two years ago. It's up 21% compared to Chicago two years ago. And in New York, you're already seeing the political ramifications tonight in the early returns with Eric Adams, who ran as the tough on crime candidate in the New York City Democratic primary, is right now ahead. So it's very clear to me that these homicide rates being up are definitely having some impact at least the ballot box. Everybody says, you know, let's rethink it. New York's uh, had these big uh, bail reform laws and figuring out how to do fair policing. Uh, Now you do have to ask whether or not they are bearing the fruit of those measures. And we will look into this more. So let's uh, look at violent crime because now you get a pushback to the premise, which is everything's worse. Yeah, this is really interesting to me. And what we see here, look at the violent crime rate. So this is homicides plus rape plus robbery plus aggravated uh, battery. And what we see here is that, in fact, there's very little change compared to a year ago. And in fact, compared to 2019 in New York, Los Angeles and Chicago, the rates are all actually down. So whatever is going on in these cities right now is something that is causing the murder rate to spike, but the other violent crimes actually mostly to fall. So this is one of these puzzles, and crime is often these types of puzzles, right? If we knew how to necessarily bring down the violent crime rate, then, you know, we'd have low crime everywhere. But we don't know exactly what works. And this is a particularly odd puzzle, especially coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, look, I mean, you know, you and I are New Yorkers. We know what worked here. Uh, We know that Bratton coming in during the Giuliani administration and doing uh, the broken windows campaign of catching people doing small level crimes, putting them in jail. It wound up cutting. In addition with a lot of other economic opportunity and educational measures, it wound up taking New York City to a much better place. Now you have a reversal of that reality in this city because you have people using guns and commissions of crimes and getting let out, waiting on a case doing it again while they're waiting on a case and they're staying out. That's an issue. I I, I will point. Yes, that is true. Obviously, though, we should note that the crime rates are much lower than they were, say, in 1990 when it spiked in New York City. And I should also obviously note, you know, we saw a nationwide drop. I'm not saying one way or another whether or not the New York City measures in the 1990s worked. Plenty of people here certainly believe it. And certainly voters definitely believed it. And my father who was a supervising judge in the Bronx criminal court during the 90s, certainly believed it. But, you know, we have to put these numbers sort of in comparison. But at least at this point, there's 
no doubt that the murder rate is up in New York and pretty much across the country. No question about it. Politically, look, it's just starting to resonate. Uh, Violent crime is a very big problem. April 2021, 48%. June 41, March 2019, 49. You know, we're still at about half of the people. But let's see what happens when the numbers come through and the stories are told and it starts to resonate where you live. Harry Enten, appreciate the numbers, brother. Thank you, sir. All right. The White House. We're still dealing with a pandemic. It is true that they have a lot on their plate. Okay. The White House now says it's not expecting to meet the vaccination goal set for the 4th of July. Why? Because everything's opening anyway. And it's been politicized. And there are too many people who are worried about the vaccine for good and bad reason. Remember, it hasn't been approved yet. It's still emergency use. So what does this all mean? We have to keep asking the big question. We should have never lived through this. They should have known what to do about it. And we know that they knew. Because back 10 years ago, they did a movie called Contagion, where the filmmaker talked to experts like you see by the dozens. And they all knew from SARS and MERS what this would look like. And he nailed it. We have two key players from that film. I want you to hear from them. How'd you come up with something that's so uncanny, that's so accurate? Because they're not impressed by their genius. Because they say it was obvious. Next. The White House says what you probably suspected. We're not going to make the July 4th goal of 70 percent of adults partially vaccinated. Some states have it. New York has done it. Uh, But the CDC director says because of this fact, warning. We know our vaccines work against this variant. However, this variant represents a set of mutations that could lead to future mutations that evade our vaccine. Hmm. U.S. vaccinations are plunging even as a more contagious and severe Delta variant is spreading. Is this something that we should be more worried about? The 2011 film Contagion, 2011. If you watch it, you will be shocked, one, at how Sanjay Gupta looks better today than he did even 10 years ago, but also that it nails what could happen, would happen, and did happen, especially not just what we live through, but mutations or variants. Watch. With the new mutation, we are predicting an R0 of no less than four. And without a vaccine, we can anticipate that approximately one in 12 people on the planet will contract the disease. Nailed it. Was supposed to be post-apocalyptic. You know, was supposed to play into that. Could be, could be. Nailed it. Joining me now, Scott Z. Burns, screenwriter for Contagion, also producer, uh, director Ian Lipkin, the chief scientific consultant for the film. Uh, Dr. Lipkin, it's good to have you. Scott, thank you very much for making the time. Scott, how'd you get it so right? Did you get lucky? Um, I don't don't think I got lucky. What I did was what I think a lot of people um, who have my job do, which is you start with research and you talk to experts and I spent a lot of time with Dr. Lipkin, with Dr. Larry Brilliant, um, with people like Lori Garrett, and they all said the same thing to me. They said, this really isn't a question of if this is going to happen, it's really just a question of when. Um, And it it did happen, you know, in in lesser degrees. I mean, SARS happened, other things happened. We have a whole history on the planet 
of our, our kind of our ongoing battle with viruses. And so it was sort of naive to think this was never happening again. Your reaction to when we started going through it and it started to match your movie? Uh, you know, I, I think the thing that didn't match the movie was what I was more sort of taken with, which was the complete and abject failure of our federal government to provide a coherent response. Um, you know, I knew what the virus could do. I think there's science behind that. What was most shocking to me was the realization that the virus would be sort of a tracer bullet through our society and it would light up all of the inequities. Um, we would see that frontline communities and that, you know, people who don't have access to great health care would be affected in, in horrifying ways. So that was that was really my reaction. It was more about what we didn't anticipate than what science told us was likely to happen. You're a great writer, but even you couldn't have imagined what Trump would do in calling a pandemic a hoax. We always say the fact is stranger than fiction. If people had written up what he was about and how he acted and tried to get someone like you to sell it to Hollywood, they would have said it's not believable. Doctor, uh, looking at the vaccination rates now, uh, when you see the fall off from 3.9 percent in April, uh, the week of April 19, now 1.9, we're not going to reach 70. Not that 70 was a magic number. Uh, but what does that mean when you combine the reduced rate of vaccination and the increased rate of variants? What does that mean for us, doctor? It's a disaster. Uh, it's something that we have to address, not only in the United States, but globally. We're very focused on vaccination in the U.S., but unless everybody is protected everywhere, none of us are safe. These new variants emerge chiefly not in the U.S., but overseas. We have to start at home. How important is it that the CDC, the government, whoever it is, gets the vaccine approved for use and not just emergency use? I think that's extremely important. It will eliminate one of the major objections that people have to taking the vaccine. But there still will be people who will say that they don't want to take the vaccine. Now, it's important to recognize that this has been challenged during the smallpox era back mm. in 1905, when it went to the state Supreme Court in Massachusetts and then to the federal Supreme Court. We may find ourselves there again. Mm. Uh, one quick question for you. Sequel? Oh, wow. Um, you know, Steven Soderbergh and I have talked about a sequel, I guess. I guess anything is possible. Um, obviously, we've, we've seen that. So um, we're, we talk about it. Um, I'm not sure this one's over yet. So uh, I, I think we still have a ways to go. We know this isn't over. Uh, we're just living like it is. I look forward to seeing what comes next, uh, at least at the movies. The reality, I've gotten enough of. Scott Burns, thank you uh, for getting it right when you made your movie and talking about it now. And Dr. Lipkin, as always, appreciate the insight. We'll speak again. All right. This is why I came to work tonight. I cried the right kind of cry. I watched America's Got Talent. I don't usually watch the show. Somebody sent me a clip. And somebody on this show blew me away, not just because of her voice, not just because of what's going on in her life, because what she told me about what matters about my own. And she gave a message that is so resonant and real right now, and she is the perfect vessel for it. I can't wait to introduce you to 
Night Bird. American all day long. Next. Tonight's American is moving millions of hearts with her voice, with her story, but most importantly, with her truth. I want you to meet 30-year-old Jane Marcheski. She is a cancer survivor warrior. Last year, doctors told her she had a 2% chance of survival after her cancer metastasized to different parts of her body. Just months to live, but the word that she took from it was live. Now in her third battle, she's not letting it stop her or her music. She goes by the stage name Nightbird. And I want you to listen to what comes out of her with her gift on America's Got Talent. Listen. I wrote a hundred pages, but I burned them all. Yeah, I burned them all. I blow through yellow lights and don't look back at all. I don't look back at all, looting all mine. Now I can't hide. Said I knew what I wanted, but I guess I lied. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost, and it's alright. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost, and it's alright. It's all right to be lost sometimes. You know, when you mix talent and truth, sometimes you make magic. And that performance earned her Simon Cowell's golden buzzer, advancing her to the live shows. She goes by Nightbird, and I want to welcome her to primetime right now. What a pleasure for me. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for myself, for my wife, for my kids, uh, for reminding us what beauty looks like, what passion and purpose look like, and what we have to remember when you said you cannot wait for the bad things to go away before you decide to be happy about your life. It hit me like a hammer, and I want to thank you for that, and I want to thank you for living it. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't expect to even say it that day, but I think that was a battle I was fighting for myself in my mind. You know, um, there's always those voices that say, you know, the good things aren't going to last, but, um, you know, I, I, I was fighting it and I was saying, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens tomorrow or what happens after this today. Today, I'm so happy to be here and I'm alive and I'm, I'm overjoyed. In the wildest dreams that you gave yourself to give yourself the strength to get through the suck. Did you ever imagine you'd be where you are now? No. Oh my goodness, no. In a, in a sense, I always believed that impossible things could happen. Um, and for many years, the impossible things that happened in my life were, you know, catastrophe and tragedy and, and loss. But this time, the impossible thing that's happening is um, way, way better and way more than I could have ever asked for. Who has reached out to you? What kinds of people have found solace in your song that surprised you? Hmm. I think all of, it's not just America that's responding to this, but it's people all over the world from all cultures and people groups and um, socioeconomic backgrounds. It's, it's, 
everybody, everybody's afraid to be happy sometimes, you know, because life is really, really hard. And there's a lot of reasons. Um, there's a lot of reasons to, to be afraid. Um, but there's also a lot of reasons to be thankful. And, and my journey has taught me that we don't have to pick one. We don't have to pick, you know, life is hard or life is beautiful. Life is beautiful and hard at the same time. And that's when we're fully alive is when we, when we can hold both. You know, it's when you say it, with the context of where you're coming from, it is impossible to dispute unless yet, isn't that what all of us do every day? I mean, maybe even you pre this, that it is so easy for us to lose sight of that you have to be happy no matter what life brings and you have to be present and you don't get to choose your moment. You know, you got to make the most of every moment. It's so hard for us. What do you say to people? I mean, you know, of course, hearing it from you, we're all too ashamed, you know, to say, no, my life is too, my life is too hard, Nightbird. Um, what do you say to them when they're in the struggle? And they're like, look, I'm not her. I can't overcome things like that. It's just too much for me. Oh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not special. I'm not stronger than anyone else. I just might be, um, you know, I just have, I just have the audacity to, to keep going in the face of, in the face of reasons why I should not. And the key to it is, um, you don't deny the pain of today, but don't deny the hope of the future. Um, both are real and you take it minute by minute. Life, life doesn't really get easier. It, it really doesn't. Um, you just have to, you got to believe in impossible things. Got to believe in impossible things. You said they give me a 2% chance. It's not a 0% chance. And that means everything. Um, I don't want to talk to you about what you're fighting, but I do want to talk about your fight. You have a GoFundMe page um, yes. because cancer ain't cheap as anybody knows who's had it. I want people to know about the gun, GoFundMe page. We don't do this that often. Um, but um, I want to do it because it's the right thing to do. And I, I really want to thank you. I mean, very rarely does somebody hit me with something I wasn't ready for um, that really reframes things for me. And it was a good cry. Um, you gave me a good cry. And I hope that that the effect you're having, I hope it means something to you, Jane. I really do. Uh, Nightbird. Why Nightbird? Uh, Nightbird is a great, it's a great story. I had a recurring dream three nights in a row um, when I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard birds singing out my, outside my window um, in the dark. And the first two times it happened, it really was only a dream. And the third time I woke up and I, I really heard something. And I, I went to the window and saw the tree outside full of birds at three in the morning, pitch black, singing as if the sun had come up. And it struck me so profound in that moment that these birds were singing as if the sun had come up, but there was no proof of the sun yet. And I, I wanted to embody that, that I would hope even when there was no, no proof that I should. Well, I want to tell you, I mean... You know, I don't know if you know anything about this show, but these are not the kinds of segments I often do. But I just don't know that I could give anything to the audience that matters as much. And I don't I don't care about the show. I hope you do well on it. And I'll be following now because of you. Um, but your voice is beautiful. Um, and I've heard other beautiful voices, um, but not 
that carry the truth, what they called authenticity quickly on stage, to me is something more resonant than just authenticity. Um, you are truth to us that people can persevere and there's beauty in that. And you are a beautiful example of it. Thank you very much, my friend. Good luck. And thank you for what the gift you gave me and you're giving so many people. Thank you. It means the world to me. Thank you so much. Nightbird, ladies and gentlemen. Keep watching. Keep singing. We'll be right back. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost. The Big Show. Don Lemon tonight. It's star D. Lemon right now. What's up? Man, I'll tell you what. Every once in a while, you got to wonder whether or not this is worth it. And then somebody like this kid, yeah. Nightbird, comes into your life and you get the opportunity to give her this platform uh, so that people can hear her sing and hear where her song is coming from and what she is dealing with yeah. that the rest of us can't hold a candle to. And yet her attitude is exactly what we all need. And then it's suddenly worth it. Yes. Well, listen, she's very talented, no doubt. And she is an inspiration, very inspiring. But we each have our talents. You have your calling, you have your talent, and you're very good at it. So don't uh, discount what you do. Don't underestimate what you do. I ain't no nightbird. I'll tell you that right now. She made me cry. Because you can't sing. I can't sing. You make people cry a lot. I can sing. I can make people cry, too. I'd like to make you cry. (laughs) Listen, I tell you, I want to talk about something. And listen, congratulations to her, and I loved having her on. Uh, but we're having a very important election in New York City right now. And uh, it, a lot of it has to do with the biggest issue is what you talked about in your show. And that's crime. Um, and what you talked about with Harry. It, it's crime. That's what people are going to vote on. That's the number one issue. Everything else comes second. Um, the murder rate is up across uh, across the country and in the city. But interesting, all the other things that people talk about and try to make it an issue out those are down from two years ago, and that's good news with that. But the murder rate, look, you cannot bring a life back. You Shootings. Can bring, you, you can bring the economy back. You can bring the real estate market back. You can bring retail back. You can do, I would never, ever bet against New York City, as I've been saying. But you can't bring back a life, and that's what people are going to vote on. That's well, what they're look, voting obviously, on Obviously, you know, to those who are following the New York mayor, I know that you all have your own lives and stuff. But it's but consequences around the country. Yeah. It's a barometer um, of what's going you on. You know, the most interesting thing is because it's ranked choice voting, uh, unless there's a huge, you know, 10, 15 point spread between number one Can and Can I show you? Two. We got a graphic, Chris. Yeah, let's go ahead. Yeah, let's go Because other than go that, on. we're not going to know until July. They're just coming in now. And this is, we have ranked choice here. We'll explain, but... There you go. There it is, Chris. Sorry, go yeah. on. So right now, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, well, they closed the polls, so they're, they're going to be counting it as a pretty efficient uh, municipality in terms of how they do it through the boroughs. But he probably won't wind up with anything like 10 points. And if he doesn't, um, then this is going to be interesting. He's a former cop, Eric Adams, and he's going to go tough on crime in New York City and New York State. And yes, my brother is the governor of New York. They have legal obstacles to bringing down the crime. Shootings are the problem and people not being put in jail and staying in jail for shootings. And part of that is law, not just everything else. Well, uh, I had uh, the former police commissioner, Bill Bratton, on the on Friday. And he says that all of these reforms and the rhetoric that's and he's a police commissioner. Crime is down under him. Think about that, whatever you want. He said um, that all of these uh, the the rhetoric about defunding defund the police. He says that's affected crime. Uh, also, the reform, especially um, bail reform and so on, that it's just moving too fast. They're trying to do too much at, at one time. And quite frankly, these are his words. 
people need to realize that some people need to be in jail when it comes to bail reform. And many of the people that they're picking up, the people who are committing these crimes, are people who have been let out, people who are uh, out on parole, who have been let out, out, on on bail. This, out on bail, I should say. Um, they're, they find that they are the ones who are committing, many of them are the ones mm-hmm. who are committing these crimes. But by the way, let me put this up just so I have it. And then I'll let you go on and finish. Uh, first, this is, this, this is the first choice because we have ranked choice voting here. The first choice for people who have voted early or people who have voted in person. It could be weeks before we find out. Yeah, it, it is above, going to be weeks. Who gets above 50% here. So um, let's will. just say Eric Adams won't get above 50%. Let's just say it won't happen. And then the next round, the people who made whoever their second choice was, and until they get someone gets above 50%, it won't be decided. That's why we have ranked choice voting. But certainly New York City, a barometer of what's happening across the country, people are voting on the crime issue right now in this city. That's the number one um, thing, at the, the number one, it's at the top of their list when it, when it comes to what issues they're voting on. Yeah, well, look, right. and I think there's a real reason for that. I mean, I heard uh, someone uh, giving their opinion about it earlier who's a former New York politician, and they were saying, you know, the younger generation, they don't know how bad it used to be, so they're a little shook by this. I, I dismiss that. Um, Hearing about shootings and seeing people run out of stores with bags, knowing that they're not going to get arrested, is going to shake everybody in that community. And I think that city, uh, my city, is heading for some tough sledding for some time to come unless there is serious structural reform to how the system operates. And it ain't cops. It's not that cops aren't doing their jobs. Okay, they're arresting people. It's how those arrests are being treated. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I got a lot to talk about. This is one issue that we'll be discussing and a lot of other issues. Thank you, sir. The Lemon, I love you. Like Nightbird says, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Can we tell people what we did for Juneteenth? Yes. (laughs) I said to Chris as we were on the dance floor, I said, remember that I danced with you on Juneteenth. I thought that was funny. I thought you would laugh. You I thought laugh. it was beautiful. I yeah, loved whatever. being with you. I loved it even more. Our entire more families were together day. and friends, and we were enjoying ourselves. We were out, and we were celebrating, and, you know, it was Juneteenth. And I said, hey, look, it's Juneteenth, and we're all dancing. A diverse group of people. It was beautiful. I thought it's it was beautiful. It's all good, brother. I yeah. love you, D. Lemon. Make your witness. I love you, too, sir. I'll see you later. This 